From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I speak with Tracy Sherrard, editorial director of Ramastad HarperCollins, about books and the book publishing industry. And after that conversation, in lieu of the recent stories about the role sports plays in the public discourse, we are rebroadcasting my 2016 conversation with Bill Leonard, church historian at Wake Forest University School of Divinity about the role of dissent in America's public discourse. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the Public Morality. In 1814, Thomas Jefferson eloquently and succinctly stated, I cannot live without books. For many, Jefferson's words still hold true. But the book industry, like many other venues, whether it's music or the newspaper industry, is trying to find its voice in the uncharted territory of technology. What does the book industry look like today? And what does the future hold? To answer these questions and others is Tracy Sherrard. Sherrard is editorial director of Amistad HarperCollins Publishers. Tracy Sherrard, welcome to The Public Morality. Good morning, Byron. How are you? Well, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Good. So let's begin. We're, we're going to give you uh, the honor of... Um, presenting to the entire book industry, the state of the book industry address. How would you define that in your, in your remarks? <laughs> well, I would say that we as an industry are publishing some incredible books. Um, I would say it's unfortunate that the number of books being purchased, the overall number of books being purchased, is declining over the past couple of years. And so as an industry, I would like um, for us to become more active in bringing books to our audience. It would be, for instance, it would be wonderful to see um, editors spend more time working in bookstores, you know, so that they have direct contact with our, with our consumer base. And it would be nice if we were, um, you know, bringing our love that we have for books, you know, to to everyone else. You know, create, you know, sort of a town hall environment in book publishing lobbies. Um, you know, and, and I love the fact that we're seeing, like, you know, more audio books everywhere, like um, at gyms and places like that. And... Um, and I'd like to see, you know, books in, in more concert venues. You know, I'd like to see, um, you know, the ESPYs have a, book, a sports book category. I would love to have the Oscars have a celebrity book category. You know, I, I would love it so that we as an industry, you know, took books to the people everywhere, everywhere the people are. Because, you know, books relate to everything that we do and, and just add beauty to it. To our lives and 
and we should share that passion with everyone. Now, you mentioned um, uh, in that eloquent address, by the way, you mentioned that um, books, uh, book sales have been declining. But, if, but going even a little further, talk, if you will, how you've noticed the industry change since you've been in the business. How has it evolved or changed? Well, I've been in the business a long time. I didn't. I didn't date you. I just. Said. <laughs> <laughs> so I was there when people were trying to figure out what to do with uh, digital rights. <laughs> I was there, you know, with the invention of the first reader, mm-hmm. and um, and when Amazon came on the scene, and and just seeing all of that evolve over the years has been fascinating. Um, and and what has happened where, you know, e ebooks started out, you know, they grew slowly but then they, you know, were pretty pretty solid part of the market, but in the last couple of years ebook sales um, you know, have declined substantially. Um, and, you know, print books are on the rise and audiobooks are on the rise. Um, so those those are the major differences that, that I've seen and also categories, things that were were not popular in the early 90s and that are popular now, like, say, essays and memoirs, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like that. So categories have become hotter, certain categories, and others cooler. Is, is that a, a, a consistent trend that certain categories rise for a while and then they drop and they rise? Is that, is that a consistent trend or is that is that, that phenomenon fairly new? Um, I'd say that um, they change over time. I, they change over time. Um, what's consistent, I'd say, are mysteries and romance. But then uh, of late romances, the marketplace is declining a bit. So so it, it changes over time, yeah. Categories and, and popularity of them change over time. Well, well, the romance piece just proves we're becoming more cynical as a people, so we don't, we don't even want to have time for that. So we just... <laughs> There's always time for love, right? Uh, uh, well, one would hope so, right? <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. You know, given the given uh, the medium for what is understood as writing uh, has has changed, and, and, and I'm when it, and I'm going beyond books. I'm thinking that you know, from 140 characters to something being posted on Facebook to someone who offers a blog. I mean, does that impact what the individual might uh, consider reading? And, and thereby, does it impact the book industry as well? Um, I think what people read, the, the length, I, I believe, is, has been impacted. You know, for instance, you know, poetry is on, on the rise. So I think that's direct. Uh, direct product of of the internet and 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 digital learning and and that experience and and people are also seem to be enjoying shorter books. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's due to time. You know, another thing you can check off your list rather than you know reading one for weeks and weeks. I don't, I don't know. So um, you know, and is that you you raise you raise a good point there? Is that also probably a, a is it a function of our culture that everything is quicker now, that, that whether it's our politics, whether it's recipes, I guess maybe books too, you know, we want to, maybe do we just want to get to the point quicker? Yeah, I think maybe we do. I think maybe we do. And, and then, um, but still there's the beauty of language. 
you know, that, that isn't compromised by length. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, statistically speaking, you sort of touched on it earlier, and I, I want to um, go a little further. Uh, you talked about print books being being on the rise, uh, but that is still the the dominant uh, uh, way why books are sold, right? The print print the print format. Yes, and it's about seventy something percent of the of the market. And how does the ebook and audio book then play play out in that last that roughly that thirty percent you have left? Um, I you know I, I don't believe that audio is included in in okay. the in those numbers, I think it's just e versus print, and then um, for audio, I think it's separate. And I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but they're growing. Um, audiobooks are growing in popularity, and e is in the twenty-something percentile. Now, now, now what about? Um, it just occurred to me. What about streaming services? How do those impact your industry at all? Or do they? Um, I don't think that they do too much. You know, um, we're using aspects of it for for marketing, but they don't. You you think in terms of competing for time? Yeah. Like people are streaming shows as opposed to reading books. Is that how you mean it? Yeah, well, I know know, that's one way. I also know that that I know that you can get some audio things. I haven't haven't really uh, explored it, but I know you can get some audio stuff. On Spotify, I mean, there may not be a, a whole book, but I, I just I didn't know if that had if you had noticed any impact that way. Um, I think I think that is part of the growth in, in the audiobook industry, mm-hmm. electronic devices, yes, mm-hmm. and, and having that easy access. And then where where does because I know I know I have an, I know I have I have a number of writers on Facebook that follow me. Um, where does self-publishing, uh, does it have any impact at all on what you do uh, at all? It, I, I pay attention to it. <laughs> you know, my favorite self-published title is um, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome um, by Dr. Joy DeGray. Um, that, you know, I, I think is such a smart book. I, I think it's quite ahead of its its time in a lot of ways and is, you know, which makes it very timely and very smart. So self-publishing, you know, does impact our industry. Um, I pay attention to it because I'm, I'm fascinated by what people are interested in reading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a time where that was, uh, it was sort of, um, the, the ugly stepchild, but now it, it, it I guess in some regards it, it's it's growing in respectability. Is, is that would, would that be fair? or Is it still just sort of out there as is the unwanted orphan? Um, we don't think of it as an industry. We don't think of it as unwanted or or as direct competition either. Okay. So I'm gonna stick with this for a moment. We'll talk about writers in, in the vocation. Uh, of being a writer these days, and given, given how your decisions that you make, you you know, are, are um, very selective. Has 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 the vocation of writing? Say, someone says, "I'm a writer." Has that morphed into something that that should be pursued, or 
uh, as something tangential to other endeavors, like if if I'm the CEO of a company, then I write a book. Or if I'm a professor, then I write a book. But just the vocation of writing, is is, is that just more and more difficult to pursue now, just as, as the industry uh, uh, de- demands it? I don't think so. I, I think it's important to, to have a job in the beginning of your writing career. I think it adds stability. And... Um, and then as you grow and you find yourself, you know, living, you know, making enough money that you can live off your royalty checks, then you might want a different kind of freedom, which would be the freedom to, to write full time. So in the beginning, I'd say, yes, it's important to keep, a, to keep one's job, particularly for nonfiction, because you want those connections and you want to continue to build your platform. Um, but fiction can take off in a different kind of way. And so so for both, I think it's important to be employed. And for fiction, I think in the beginning and then maybe not so much in the end because you definitely need to devote full time to promoting yourself as a writer and the craft of writing. And and for those who, who uh, for the writers who may be listening in, um, you talked about special. You talked. You touched on nonfiction. You talked about the right of building their platform. How, uh, how important is the author's ability to market his or own his or her own work, especially in that nonfiction genre? Maybe also in both genres. How important, is, crucial is that to your decision to purchase that book? Um, one's media platform is really is critical. Um, social media wise, and 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 your connections and your network, um, it's very, it plays a heavy role in our decision to acquire nonfiction in particular. Um, otherwise, it can be challenging to get media attention because, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of books published each year, yet we only hear about a few. And so, and normally that's because of author connections, publisher connections, and the author's expertise you know, that makes them stand out when, when they're publishing nonfiction. And fiction, the author needs to be savvy as well when it comes to marketing and to be well-connected. So it, it matters a lot. So if a novel comes in with, with endorsements from other popular writers, you know, they, they might stand a, a stronger chance than someone who doesn't. But, you know, but both have a chance because it's, it's about the writing. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Tracy Sherrard, editorial director, Amistad, HarperCollins Publishers. Um, my next three questions, I, I actually, uh, I don't want to say like I set you up, but I, I told people on Facebook, see, using my platform there, I told people on Facebook, uh, some of the writers, that I would be interviewing you if, and if they had any questions. And I picked a couple I thought that you might find interesting. Okay. And, <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, no, no, no one is asking for a book deal online, so you're fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the first one is from Meredith, and her question is, do you have any recommendations for academics who want to write something other than dry books that collect dust on library shelves? I, <laughs> <laughs> well, they should pick a timely subject. Um, a friendly subject matter, too, um, meaning popular. And they should, you know, write 
in English and not necessarily the kind of English they would speak to the professor they're trying to impress down the hall. You know, right for a layperson like the new Jim Crow, Evicted, those are great um, nonfiction titles that, um, that are for a popular market that were written by, um, one was written by an academic. Okay, now the next question is from Paul. You touched on this sort of glancingly, but we're going to come back to it. Paul asks, how do you feel about Amazon's role in the industry? Amazon is a great resource. Whoa, that sounded... Uh, we're going to let that stay, but that... <laughs> <laughs> They're a great resource in so many ways. I, I, I trust you. I'm, we're going to go with that. I just... I just, I just you, you, know, you know, Tracy, when you do this job, you, you, you hear, you ask the question, that's my role, and then you get the answer. And I just know some of your answers, you were quite engaged, but that one was great resource, and you weren't going to say anything else. So that's, <laughs> I'm just telling you what I heard. <laughs> you know, you're, you're right, because it would take me a while to, to explain the ways in which they're a resource. Okay, okay. See, one <laughs> of the things we try to do is that we, we tr on this show, we try to have serious topics, but we, but we also like to have a little fun. So we just had a little fun, and that's all, that's all that was. Okay. And, and then, and then, the, then uh, finally, uh, the third question is from David. And I, th yeah, I think you've already answered this, but I'll, I'll ask it again. He goes, how do writers with small audiences but big voices worthy of a larger reach find a way to get published? Um, they should definitely read a lot, um, and they should know their core audience and how to reach them. Because once you know the core, you can build on that. And, and then finally, one of the, one of the things that um, uh, you started by saying that um, you know, although it's, it's it's declining, what do you see? Going forward, do you see more audio? I mean, more audio books, more e-books. Do you see print on the rise? Um, do you see a different emphasis? You have the crystal ball here. What do you, What do you see? I see um, more physical books on the rise, and and I say this because I was talking to a classroom of of children two years ago, and they told me that they didn't like reading on their electronic devices because they were distracting, because they were reading something and someone would text and then they're off into that land and, and all of that. And so I think people really enjoy that intimate experience of having that book, you know, right there and with you, and it just takes you to a whole other place. Um, I've had electronic readers in the past, and, you know, just when I'm right there ready to read, you know, the battery goes dead, you know, and mm -hmm. it's just like, what am I going to do? You know, what am I doing now? Right. You know, and so I'm wasting time. And, and, you know, and then I just think about if I'd had that physical book. So I think physical books will be with us. I, I think um, as a society, we will recognize the, that we need to be readers. We all need to be readers. And, and responsible and responsible citizens as a result, because um, I think we we have seen what can happen when you don't value learning and words and and reading. I think we can see that as a society and and how it's highlighted, you know, and, and indirectly on the news every day. Um, so, 
so I see more physical books. I see more people reading, and um, and more audio books. You know, they're equally highly enjoyable, and um, and you can multitask. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things though about e- I'll just say this about eBooks. The, the only thing about eBooks is that one of the things that I love is I love going to book signings. You can't have an e-book. You can't have an e-book signing. Well, you're gonna write on my yeah. iPad. You're gonna write over my iPad. You can't do that. You know, it's just I, I. I like to engage with the author that way. I like book signings, so I don't want the book signings to ever go away. That's my bias. right. And I love to put a book in someone's hand. Say, hey, check this out. It's incredible. Yeah. See, now, now we're now we're getting now we're getting to the, because that is that is the joy. But I would imagine you've been reading for quite some time. I know I've been reading for quite some time. So that joy, and is that also part of it? Do we do we? How do we get books in hands at, at younger ages? I think um, kids have to see the parents reading, and I think that they will become readers. I, I think it's been proven as such, as a matter of fact, and. Um, and let them know how exciting it is. Like my, my nephews, when they come over, I'm, I'm always reading to them. And they love it. They sit down and they listen. And, it, and no matter what it is that I'm reading, you know, sometimes it's a proposal I have to read for work. <laughs> they don't, I know they don't understand a word, but they're just sitting there <laughs> just, just enjoying, I think, just, just hearing the voice of the words. You know, so I, I think if we just continue to let people know how exciting books are. Did I just, life-changing they are. Did I just get a scoop that, that there's some author who's poured their heart out to, and their agent just sent you a proposal and your nephews are going, yes, no, yes, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, they don't get to weigh in. <laughs> and, it's, and it's beautiful because it's the only time they're quiet, too. They just listen. <laughs> Imagine that. Tracy Sherrard, I'm a star at HarperCollins Books. Thank you so much for being on the Thank public rally. Thank you. Thank you, Byron. I had a wonderful time. Likewise. We'll have to talk again. Take care. Okay, great. That was Tracy Sherrard. Stay tuned as we rebroadcast my 2016 interview with Bill Leonard of Wake Forest University School of Divinity about the role of dissent in America. Welcome back. It seems we can't get away from certain issues. What began last year when San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick decided not to stand for the national anthem recently flourished with a number of NFL players as well as their owners taking part in displays of solidarity. However one felt about such displays, it masked the underlining issue which is the role dissent plays in our public discourse. We are rebroadcasting our 2016 interview with Professor Bill Leonard, church historian, Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Bill Leonard, welcome to the public morality. Thanks. Glad to be here, Byron. Let's begin. So much has been made uh, of late um, about San Francisco 49ers quarterback, uh, backup quarterback, I might add, um, Colin Kaepernick's decision not to stand for the national anthem. Why do you believe this story has dominated several news cycles? Well, I think 
primarily because, uh, well, one, because it's an election year and everything is sensitive. Uh, everything becomes an issue in the public square. And, and so people are, I, I'm not even sure sensitized, but at least uh, uh, fretting over every kind of issue that, that looks like a public issue and a controversial issue. So I think that's one thing. I think the other is we... Uh, we may pay more attention to uh, to the sports uh, responses uh, than we do to other things, and so it's such a public event, such a public moment. Um, so I think that's another thing. And then uh, I also think that that uh, national symbols become moments when we when when these rituals. Uh, Captivate people, and they uh, get very concerned that that somehow we have uh, uh, acted uh, heretically, actually, uh, because it becomes part of the national civil religion, uh, saying the pledge or uh, standing for the national anthem, and so that that has a kind of religio-cultural uh, uh, controversy to it as well. Well, I mean, that's sort of an ironic twist if you think about it, because you, you called it our civic religion. And yet um, this is you can make you make an argument for all the sports. But but football in particular is probably the most violent uh, of all the sports that we have. It, why do you, why do you why is it? I mean, do you have any speculation as, as to why it's so important that we stand for a national anthem? I'm not saying it's either good or bad, but why is it so important in sporting events, do you think? I think I think we have very few collective symbols in the culture, because and, and I don't think that's a, a negative thing. I think that's a sign of pluralism, uh, in that uh, individual individual communities, individual uh, subgroups have these the, the, their own symbols, but uh, national anthem at sporting events remains one of those symbols of. Uh, for sort of civic duty and common uh, uh, civic religion experience, and that, so I think that's what focuses on it. And and uh, it goes back so far. Uh, I, I was I was thinking with all this uh, about Muhammad Ali's recent memorial service and uh, the kind of uh, uh, outpouring of both gratitude and sympathy and. Uh, uh, public response about the contribution that Muhammad Ali had made across the years in this country. But I lived in Louisville for 16 years, and I know that um, uh, there was a time when Muhammad Ali was vilified in a similar manner uh, because of his response to uh, war and to public Christianity and his own conversion to Islam. Uh, and and then uh, that there's a whole there's a whole legacy of uh, utilizing sporting events and public moments to uh, focus dissent. And so this is one of a long line of, of those kinds of activities. And the interesting thing to me, Byron, is um, that now uh, history moves along and we honor some of those dissenters, like Muhammad Ali. But when it, when it comes up again in the contemporary moment, uh, we start attacking so why, may I ask you as a church historian, did this issue uh, s- 
inspire you to write an editorial? What what, what was underneath it for you? Well, uh, I, I am a, a historian of uh, particularly uh, focused on American religion, and I'm also uh, an ordained Baptist minister, and I've been very influenced by the 17th century Baptists and their dissent against um, elements that that even much more than in our own culture, were a, a union of the civil and the religious. And their sense that uh, dissent is, is uh, not simply a duty, it, it's, it's a probability uh, for a certain kind of religious experience because uh, culture and church and state are... Uh, knowingly or unknowingly, always going to try to dictate certain kinds of religious or symbolic behavior. And, and the Baptist reacted against that as early as 1609. And, and they were some of the first people in English to talk about dissent in the context of coerced faith, uh, coerced public symbols. And so that legacy has influenced me a lot, and I think about dissent because I teach, I have a chair in Baptist studies uh, at Wake Forest University. And so uh, I, I sort of live in that world, and it seemed to me a moment uh, to, to place these, these issues in contemporary sporting events in the larger context of dissent from the colonial period to the present. And, and whether that dissent was with religious liberty for people like Jonathan Edwards or for civil rights like... Uh, uh, persons like uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, or or like these uh, various sports figures who are now uh, dissenting in in a particular response uh, to public symbols. Well, in fact, you 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 wrote recently in the Winston Salem Journal, "quote Dissent flows like stormy winds across the American landscape." From Roger Williams, Baptist, uh, 17th uh, century founding Providence Plantation as a shelter from personal distress of conscience. Yeah. Is you see Kaepernick in that tradition? Uh, yes. And, and one of my favorite lines in Roger Williams, and there are a lot of great lines in Roger Williams who uh, really, uh, in, in a way that very few people in, the, in 17th century New England did, had a vision of pluralism uh, and and the sense that God alone is judge of conscience. And so neither the state nor an official church can judge the conscience of the, tr- the, of, of, uh, the true believer, the heretic, or the atheist. Uh, and, and in doing that opens a door to what we now call religious pluralism. But my favorite phrase in Williams is his own phrase when he looked back years later and said he invented Providence, Rhode Island, and with it the Rhode Island colony as a shelter for persons distressed of conscience. And I find that to be a wonderful line relative to dissent and its role in the American experience. And, and um, in that you mentioned um, heretic. And I, I, I could imagine some of our listeners might take umbrage with your last remarks, suggesting that Kaepernick's actions um, are, are in that tradition of dissent. And I can see I can see some of them saying he's an unappreciative, high-paid, spoiled athlete who's thumbing his nose at America. 
How how would you respond to a charge like that? Well, uh, one one may may speak like that, except uh, again, he I, I, from from reading him, I think he feels as if he has a role uh, to play in this culture that the culture has given him in terms of where he is and what his public uh, role would be. And it is well paid, and it is all that. But it cost him something to do that. He took a chance that they might kick him out. And, and so we all, find, we all find ways to think about our consciences where we are. And uh, I think that's what he has done uh, to make a point about concerns relative to law enforcement uh, and uh, race uh, and justice. And uh, you don't have to agree with him to understand, perhaps, that he's exercising uh, a grand role of dissent that has been at the heart of um, American life since the beginning of the Republic. And, and again, my point as a historian, uh, and, and we talk about Ms. Hamer, uh, um, in her day, she is terribly vilified by her culture, including being imprisoned and beaten. Uh, in Mississippi jails. Now she's one of a whole sort of pantheon of heroes who turned out to be right. Well, let, let's 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 stay with that for a moment. I was going to ask you this later, and since you you've raised it twice now, I think we should segue to it now. Um, and, and, and you can make the connection as well to to the present day. But who, but who was Fannie Lou Hamer? Uh, she is a Mississippi African American woman. Uh, who, uh, and I, I think Methodist, correct me if I'm wrong, I think she was Methodist, and, uh, but, but she is a churchwoman and uh, takes it up on herself within the larger context of the civil rights movement in the 1960s in Mississippi, the seedbed of, of civil rights and violence against that movement. And I talk about her from uh, uh, this wonderful book, God's Long Summer, uh, in which uh, time and time again, she challenges uh, the uh, absence of voting rights for African Americans and puts herself on the front lines uh, in the effort to register persons to vote in Mississippi, even when the rules, uh, such, such as uh, having the, these 25 questions that you required to answer, including uh, obscure questions about the Mississippi state constitution. So everyone flunked. That, 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 took, that took the test, right? Yes, it <laughs> took the test. Um, she continues to challenge that. And, and uh, God's Long Summer traces those experiences uh, in Mississippi with her in 62, 63, 64. And, and when she's, uh, in, in one particular case, she goes to register to vote, and uh, the whole group fails the test. And, and the way in which her faith, uh, the, the bus they were on coming back uh, gets pulled over, and uh, the driver gets arrested for driving a bus that looked too much like a school bus. So that's just like a made-up charge. And, and the rest of the bus is scared they're going to get arrested or they can't get home. And uh, the uh, writer of God's Long Summer tells about... Uh, all of a sudden, she's in the back of the bus humming and then singing, uh, 
have a little talk with Jesus, tell him all about our troubles. And that link between dissent and faith, which is, I think, going back to Roger Williams and John Clark and the Quakers uh, in colonial America, uh, an important link between uh, this is is not simply an act of justice, it's an act of faith. Um, Has there ever been a time in American history, when dissent was initially seen uh, as the ally of the status quo? That's a great, that's a great question. And um, I think in some, some segments, that is, that is um, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to take a chance, and you, you push back on this if you, if you think I'm being a, a bit too glib about it. I think the abolitionist movement uh, in the North, uh, before and during the Civil War, uh, rewrote the status quo uh, in a way that it had not been rewritten before, to say that uh, we, we, we can't claim to be Americans um, and, and continue in chattel slavery. And so th- there was a sense, I think, uh, in, in a surprisingly rapid period of time, when even though not all Northerners agreed with the abolitionists, when the abolitionists really rewrote uh, the status quo in, in, for certain mm-hmm. pieces of Northern culture, and and then um, and I'm, I'm about going to tease and say uh, I also I, I love your question. I'm going to have to think about it a bit, but I don't I don't think so. Uh, other than that that. Uh, that illustration I made, I think that dissent always challenges challenges the status quo uh, dramatically. Then, then, and also, I, I think. With, with that said, I think um, time and time again, regardless, we, we tend to look at these moments as different. As you're, I'm going back to what you said earlier, yeah. that yeah. you have this uproar about Mr. Kaepernick. Um, and we both remember a time when Muhammad Ali slash yeah. Cassius Clay was vilified yeah. for yeah. doing similar, and yet the response is always the same. Even though history can be cyclical in a macro context, we look at these scenarios, especially when we have the privilege of being the status quo, of looking at it as this isolated moment. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh and and without and that what you were asking about why I wrote that article. Part of the reason I, I wrote that article was to say this is not new and this belongs to a particular tradition. Uh, and not everybody. Uh, I, I don't know much about his faith uh, from a faith perspective, but not everybody who dissents has to necessarily have a particular uh, faith perspective either. Mm-hmm. So, um, but but. The other thing that amazes me, and this is true of Roger Williams, it's true of uh, Mrs. Hamer and others, of course, is um, uh, how did they see in their culture what the majority did not see? Uh, I find that particularly the case with Williams, who who looks way beyond his his context to a vision of uh, America that, that was just not... On very many people's. I mean, this is pre-revolutionary war. Mm-hmm. Um, and and how did people 
like uh, Frederick Douglass and Sojourner Truth, uh, people who came out of slavery, see that there could be that that there could be a way. And and it brings us up to Martin Luther King, who's who fascinates in the sense uh, in many senses, but in particularly he sa- he says America has this legacy; it just hasn't lived up to the dream. And and th- the the promises that were made have to be extended to everyone. And that's really what what uh, Roger Williams is saying so very early on, even before some of the promises are made. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with uh, Professor Bill Leonard from Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Uh, do you think uh, we, as a, as a society, I'm just uh, planning broad strokes here, are we guilty sometimes of truncating what it means to be American with our particular understanding? Yes, Absolutely. Uh, and we see that in in other eras. Uh, we, we can just expand that, that whole descent. That is, uh, we we we're now in this controversy over whether uh, uh, Latino Latina uh, individuals can be good Americans, and and uh, where where the danger of the immigrant. But we could go back and say uh, one of the most uh, terrible periods in Americans' life when when everybody was afraid of Roman Catholics. And where the Catholic immigrant, uh, you know that old line in, uh, in the stores in Boston, no Irish need apply. Uh, so part of what I have said is where religious liberty is concerned, and this is, this is true with, with American uh, democracy as well, uh, Americans grant religious liberty, but we often do it grudgingly. Uh, it takes a while for new religious groups, new ethnic groups, new racial groups uh, to benefit from the claims we make because uh, we often give that, that liberty grudgingly and suspiciously on when, when, when these groups uh, appear. Well, it, it, I guess in the immediate context, based on what you just said, uh, that doesn't leave much room for the contrarian opinion. And, and how critical, in your view, is the contrarian opinion or, or dissent been to the formation, the continuation of the American experiment? It formed us. It formed us and, and shapes us every time because often uh, we, we don't envision where this democracy should take us on the basis of the claims we've made. And it requires the dissenter to highlight that even when the dissenters are dealt with violently. Uh, they, they lay down uh, often their lives uh, for this legacy and they carry us uh, – Farther than we than we wanted to go, but but need to go to fulfill these promises we've made. So they're the ones who who uh, carry us into places that often the majority doesn't want to go because um, we don't see that larger vision. We get tribal. We get uh, uh, our own definitions of Americanism, and they carry us beyond that. And it's hard. It it's. It's terrible at the moment, um, but but it that is even though that's difficult, it is one of the great things about uh, this country. I think. You know, I, as you were as you were talking, um, forgive me, but I was thinking in terms of Hegel, and that w- we might be the anti-Hegels in that um, the truth, facts alone. Don't give us truth. I mean, I mean, Hegel would say that it's, it's, it's interrelatedness of facts where we get truth, but 
But at the same time, it's like it's almost. I hear you saying that we're almost embracing a fact, our fact, and making that the truth. Yep, that's right. That's right. Uh, and and see, political orthodoxy—that's the thin line between uh, uh, religious or political orthodoxy and uh, uh, control, social control. Uh, there are boundaries. Uh, but uh, knowing when the boundaries should hold and when we need to loosen them is is part of what dissenters remind us. We've come. We've obviously, as you wrote in, it, in your wonderful piece, uh, that's been a long uh, held tradition. Whether we tend to acknowledge it or not, or whether they've been, as is oftentimes, some of our best dissenters have been dealt with harshly. But Professor Bill Leonard of Wake Forest University School of Divinity, I want to thank you today, sir, for being on the Public Morality. Wonderful. Wonderful to talk to you, and thank you for doing this. My pleasure. That was Bill Leonard. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. I would like to believe there is an intellectual acceptance to the concept of pluralism in America, though not a one-size-fits-all proposition. The tension arises when we begin to ask the oxymoronic clarifying question, whose definition of pluralism are we talking about? Therefore, pluralism is widely accepted until it isn't. More than one agrees with NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick's decision last year to kneel during the playing of the national anthem misses the point if pluralism is not factored. To simply view Kaepernick's actions in the reflexive analysis whether he was right or wrong to kneel during the national anthem keeps the issue on the surface. To disagree with such actions and not grapple with why those have chosen to protest in the manner they have may suggest their definition of pluralism is wrong. In this context, difference equates to deficiency. Not standing for the flag produces the hackney refrain of not supporting our soldiers. If anything, kneeling during the national anthem may be the greatest compliment to their valor. Those who participate in the theater of war do so to protect the rights we cherish. That includes the rights that many would oppose. That is a hallmark of the American experiment. Those who comprise the dominant culture would be remiss if they did not also consider the peculiar history of African Americans includes multiple layers of impediment in order to enjoy the rights the nation committed to paper. Some feel those rights are still beyond reach. In 1936, poet Langston Hughes published Let America Be America Again. It spoke for all Americans who found themselves economically disadvantaged along with the social ramifications of such distinctions, but done so through the historical lens of the African-American experience. In the first stanza, Hughes writes, Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plains seeking a home where he himself is free. America was never America to me. 
1619 to the present day, these words have remained true for some segment of the African-American community. Though we can point to those whom we may feel Hughes' lament is no longer applicable, it does not invalidate his words as a lived reality for far too many. It reflects those aspects of pluralism that may cause discomfort. Instead of dealing with it, the preferred modus operandi is to question why the methodology chosen must be disruptive to the ethos of the status quo. We prefer the false correlatives supporting the change that does not create discomfort. When has the American narrative had authentic change that was not accompanied by some measure of discomfort? From the signing of the Declaration of Independence to the present moment, discomfort has been a key ingredient in realizing change. We certainly shouldn't assume that the sin equates to being correct any more than the majority opinion represents the path forward. Lest we forget slavery, prohibiting women from voting, and the denial of civil rights at one time enjoyed majority approval in America. Specifically, it is informed dissent that abets our democratic values. Rarely, if ever, has informed dissent enjoyed the initial support of the status quo. The history of humankind's social progression includes a narrative of informed dissent. In a country whose origins are rooted in an obligation to seek life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, informed dissent becomes the patriotic duty and not a commitment to maintaining comfort. The American experiment is a beacon of liberty and equality for all, regardless of one's race, gender, religion, non-religion, sexual orientation, and the like. It demands space for all at the uncomfortable table of pluralism. It doesn't matter if the founders may not have seen it that way. What they committed to paper compellingly says otherwise. Therefore, the nation can ill afford to reduce pluralism to the contours of one's personal understanding, nor can it be something that does not create discomfort. To do so ultimately undermines the American experiment and takes us further from that more perfect Union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which can be found on iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.